God is good. You know, it's the simplest and yet most profound truth in the universe that God really is good. Like, that's the best news you're going to hear today. I mean, I'm going to try to preach here, you know. I make no promises. But the best news you're going to hear today is that God really is good. Really is good. Last week, we began this message, and I want to conclude today. We asked the question, can God use anybody? Can, can God really use anybody? And I think most of us would get this question right on a theology test. If I said true or false, God can use everyone, uh, you would probably put true, uh, because we believe, at least in theory, that everybody has sinned, right? Romans 3, verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Right? Paul goes, he says, uh, there is no difference. There's no difference between Paul and me, me and you. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And finish the sentence. A lot of times we quote it that far. Finish the sentence and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Or or, or, uh, Isaiah 53 says, we all. Like not a quarter of us, not half of us, not most of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we understand the ground is level around the cross. We get that. We assert our affirmation of that. And yet, we buy into what we called last week um, the pedestal syndrome. And, and we would never actually say this with our lips, right? We just begin to slightly believe this, that, that God only uses the smart people or the educated people or, or the good-looking people or the trim people or the financially sound people who've never had any credit card debt. God only uses the people who've never had a bad thought, who's never had a word that begins with an F pop into their mind when they're cut off in traffic. That's the only people God uses. God never uses people who've made mistakes. And the problem with that is that when we begin to believe it, we don't articulate it, but we begin to believe it in our hearts, what happens is it paralyzes us to believe that God can use us or will use us. And so last week what we discovered is is that Jesus not only welcomes, but he heals and he uses broken people. In fact, that's the only kind of people Jesus uses because that's the only kind of people there are. Broken people. And we looked at a story last week in Mark chapter 5 of what we called the most unlikely person that Jesus would ever use. We met this guy. Jesus, remember, he gets out of the boat. He's in a Gentile area. So he's going to meet some Gentiles. And this guy comes up to him who is nameless, naked. I mean, that would be weird. He's demonized. That's even weirder. He's living in the tombs, which means he's living in a place of death. He's in a place of isolation. He is self-destructive. He's in constant anguish. He is a hopeless man in a hopeless situation. And then he encounters Jesus. And when you encounter Jesus, it changes you. Jesus never leaves people the same way he found them. And this man is dramatically and miraculously transformed. And then we get to the crescendo of the story. Because the story's not about the legion of demons. The devil never gets center stage in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed? He's definitely a player on stage. He's an actor on the stage. But he's never center stage because it's not about the devil. It's about Jesus. So the crescendo of the story happens in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat because the people had said, we need you to leave. 
because you're costing us money, right? The, the demons went into the pigs. The pigs ran into the water. We want you to leave. So Jesus is getting in the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So don't miss what happened there. Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. So way before Paul was declared to be the apostle to the Gentiles, this man, who moments ago had no name, No clothes, lots of demons, he's screaming, he's cutting himself, he's acting like an animal, a man that you and I would have said is unqualified. He now becomes the first apostle to the Gentiles. This is incredible. And apparently he did his job well because the next time Jesus shows up in the Decapolis in chapter 7, verse 31, people understand that he's a healer and they start bringing people to him to heal. How'd they know that? They didn't have social media. They didn't have Instagram. Nobody, you know, the dude wasn't Instagram in this. There's no Facebook. There's no CNN. Uh, you know, there's no Fox News. Not, none of that. How'd they know? Because this guy just started telling people what Jesus had done for him. And then we concluded last week, before we went into communion, we concluded, well, let me just asking the question, who here, if you get an opportunity this week, you, you'll just share what the Lord has done for you. And many of you raised your hands, but, and, and not everybody, because it was snowing and you weren't all here, but, but it, it, uh, most of the people were raising their hands saying, yeah, I will do that, I will share what the Lord has done for me, and we prayed, and many of you raised your hand. Today, I want to go the next step and ask the next question, which is this, how? How? Can we share Jesus joyfully and just naturally? I mean, we might even say organically. See, I think some of us, we don't share Jesus because we don't think we know enough. We kind of wish we had like an in-ear monitor. You know, like they have the avioms up here. They'll praise and worship team. They have the in-ear monitor. Some of us wish we kind of had an in-ear monitor so somebody could prompt us and give us the right answers when people ask questions. Kind of like, kind of like this guy right here. So, if you died today, do you know where you'd go? A cemetery? After that. I mean the afterlife. Guess not. Well, the Bible says that all men have fallen short, but you can still be saved if you burn up your wicked sleighs. Turn from your wicked ways, you idiot. You're an idiot. You just called him an idiot. You're not an idiot. Jesus loves you. But if you fuss with your spouse and believe in Pop-Tarts... Believe in your heart. Look... Tell him all his sins will be forgiven. Your sins will be forgiven. I think a bird just pooped in my coffee. God could forgive me of my sins? Can you believe that? No way. Must have been a, a pelican. Uh, I thought no sin was so bad that he can't forgive. It's filled up my mug. That's a big load of poo. Now you can share the gospel without the inconvenient hassle of actually learning it yourself. Hello, dope. Okay, so maybe that doesn't work so well, Okay. But I still think a lot of people have some anxiety about simply sharing what Jesus has done for them. I mean, I, I just this week, I looked up on, on one of my bookcases. I got a few bookcases in my study. And, and, and just here's some of the titles in the evangelism section on my own bookcase, actual titles. Here's one, Share Jesus Without Fear. 
So the implication is, it's a scary thing, right, to share Jesus. Or, or here's another one, actual title, evangelism made slightly less difficult. Not, not easy, but slightly less difficult. Or here's another one, evangelism for the faint-hearted. These are actual titles on my bookshelf. The assumption is it's hard to share Jesus. It's scary to share Jesus. And, and I want to ask the question, why is it so hard? Well, I think at least part of the answer to that is, is that we try to avoid the E word, evangelism, right? Because we've made it into something that's divorced from our normal way of life. We, we've made it into a system or a, or a program or, or something you need special training for so that it's unnatural now. It's not organic. We kind of think when somebody says the word evangelism, we think of cold calling somebody or arresting someone at the mall, you know, like they're just trying to go shopping. And, and, and you're like, do you know if you were to die tonight where you would spend eternity? And they're like, I just wanted a pretzel. I just wanted. And because we think of evangelism that way, it's foreign, it's unfamiliar. And because of that, we get this sort of anxiety building up because it's not natural. And because of that, our witness for Jesus isn't very winsome. And that means that people who don't know Jesus dislike evangelism more than we do. Becky Pippert wrote a famous book some years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she said this, and I quote, Christians and non-Christians have one thing in common. They both hate evangelism. It's true. So here's what tends to happen. We tend to keep our mouth closed. We just don't share Jesus. And that's happening more and more in our culture. I was listening to a podcast just this week by Timothy Keller uh, uh, entitled Sharing the Joy We Have in Christ. And he kind of did, he's so, and Keller's so good at this kind of historical analysis. And he broke it down this way. He said, you know, about 80 years ago, uh, there was a social pressure for us to go to church. Like, for the kids who are in here, I don't remember that. I'm not 80. But uh, but, uh, 80 years ago, there was like this social pressure to go to church. So he tells a story, Peter Drucker who's like the, the management guru, the leadership guy. Like, anybody's in leadership probably got a Peter Drucker book on their, on their bookshelf, you know. He said things like, uh, what, what gets measured gets managed, things like that. In 1937, Peter Drucker moved from Europe to New York. I think he took a position at NYU. When he moved there, he wanted to buy a house. He was going to get a mortgage, so he talked to a banker. Um, and the banker had a bunch of questions because some things never change. Uh, but uh, with all due respect to all the bankers on the front row, uh, he asked, and the banker asked this question. He said, what church do you go to? And Peter Drucker replied, what does that have to do with a mortgage? And the banker said back to him, well, if you don't go to church, why should I give you a mortgage? In, in other words, how do I know I can trust you if you don't go to church? That, that, was, that was 1937. We don't live in 1937. Where there's a social, there's been this movement socially 30 or 40 years ago, you know, when, when, when I was a young guy, um, uh, there was something more of like a live and let live sort of attitude. So that uh, when I was a kid, I remember my neighbors, they, you know, they thought, you know, people of faith were a little bit backward, but they thought we were good for society. They liked our ethics. They, they thought our doctrine was silly. I mean, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. Come on, man, give me a break. But, but, but they, but they were impressed with our ethics. They like the Sermon on the Mount. They, they like doing to others as you would have them doing to you. They kind of thought that was good. And they, so they thought, you know, church is good for society. So it's, if you want to go to church, that's fine. Live and let live. You go to church, it, it it's, makes society a little bit better. We don't live 30 or 40 years ago. We live now where increasingly 
This is slow, but increasingly, people of devout Christian faith are seen as so narrow, so exclusive, that we're now seen as bad for society. Our ethics are no longer admired. Have you noticed? We're not even seen as good citizens even anymore, so that now there is a social cost in becoming a Christian. And as a result, less Christians are actually sharing Jesus. Because there's a cost. So we're just keeping our mouths closed. And here's what's ironic about the whole thing. Our culture is now actually more like the first century. The 21st century is more like the first century than any other century in between. It's amazing to me that in in the first century, the gospel actually did really well. And you want to talk about a social cost to being a Christian? There was a social cost to being a Christian in the first century. And yet, the gospel spread like wildfire. How is that? How did the early church do that? If if there was, I mean, just follow me with the question here. And historians are asking this question too. If, If there was nothing but social cost in becoming a Christian then why did anyone ever become a Christian? Let's answer that question by looking at another story. Last week I said I wasn't going to preach. I was just going to tell you the story. I'm going to do the same again. Um, This is the story of maybe the second least likely person Jesus would ever use. Last week we had the most... The least likely person Jesus would ever use. Today is the second. Last week was a man. This week is a woman. She was a very ordinary person. She became an an absolutely extraordinary evangelist. Her story is told in John 4. So if you have your Bible, slip over to John 4. Let me kind of follow along as I tell the story. To kind of set the context for you. Jesus is going through Samaria. And he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. The first thing that jumps off the page at you is that she has, again, no name. And remember what we said, whenever you're reading the Gospels and you come across somebody that doesn't have a name, you're not told their name, that means they're faceless. You're supposed to put your face there. You are supposed to put yourself in her sandals and you encounter Jesus in this story yourself, right? So we're invited into that. Jesus starts talking to her and she thinks it's kind of odd. And culturally, it was odd because she's a woman. She's a Samaritan, more about that later. She's living in an immoral lifestyle. Jesus knows all of that, and he offers her the water of life. Let's pick up the story in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Which is kind of like the understatement, right? Somebody reads your mail. I feel like you might be a prophet. And then we have a little debate over worship. And here's what she says, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything. He's going to clean up this whole mess. Then Jesus declared... I who speak to you am he. Now, don't miss how mind-blowing this is. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus reveals himself that he is the Messiah. Now, other people have said, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Those things have happened. But this is the first time Jesus says, I'm the guy. And he says it not to a large crowd. 
He says it not to a crowd of law-abiding Jews, but to a single, immoral, Samaritan woman. Don't you love Jesus? Oh, he's so unlike us. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar. That was what she was there for. It was her, her purpose to get water. Leaving that behind, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come! See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So so how do we share Jesus just kind of naturally, sort of organically? How did the early church do it? Well, what did this woman do? I'm going to point out a few things she did. Number one, she met Jesus. I know some of you are thinking, really? That's your first point? That's as profound as it gets? Listen, I am crescendoing right now. You better get this, right? This is, this is actually profound if you'll think about it. This woman realizes that even though she's an outcast, even though she's living an immoral lifestyle, even though she doesn't deserve it, and even though Jesus knows all of that about her, he offers her the water of life. Now, now, to get how radical this is, you kind of sort of have to know something about the first century in the ancient Near East. The, the, the culture in the ancient Near East was at least three things. Number one, it was patriarchal. Okay, so the guys were in charge. And so normally, if a guy runs into a man and a woman run into, you know, at, at, a, at a well, the guy's going to say, woman, give me some water. Don't any guys ever talk like that to any woman ever now. Unless you want to be punched in the throat. Don't do that. I'm just telling you how it was, okay? It was a patriarchal, and yet Jesus takes and speaks to this woman with respect, with dignity, with honor. Not only is it a patriarchal society, it's a racist society. In, in that society, Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds. They, they didn't worship in the right place. They didn't worship in the right way. They didn't have all the scriptures. In fact, if you read the literature of the time, most Jews thought the only reason the Samaritans were even around anymore was 600 years earlier, they weren't even good enough to be carried into slavery. So it was racist. And yet he stops, and he's not just talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. It's not even that. It's a moralistic culture. It's a patriarchal, racist, moralistic culture. So no self-respecting rabbi would ever be caught talking to a woman who was living with somebody. And yet Jesus stops and he offers her the water of life. So the woman then, when she goes to tell her story, she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, he knows everything about me. He has seen me all the way down to the ugly, repulsive bottom of my soul, and he still loved me. He still loved me, and he offered me life. Do you realize that's what God has done for you? I am the Samaritan woman. I'm not a woman. It just occurs to me that's probably not a smart thing to say in 
I'm, I'm a lot like her. You are a, a, a lot like her. You, you didn't do anything to deserve salvation. Do you know that? I mean, maybe you haven't met Jesus. If you haven't met Jesus yet, like this lady, I invite you, like this lady, to just, to just meet Jesus because he, he, loved, he knows everything about you. He knows all those deep, dark secrets, and he still came for you to offer the water of life. And you didn't earn it. It's a free gift. Never, ever lose sight of that. A couple years ago, I was reading a story with Robert Morris. He's a pastor down in, uh, in Texas. Uh, and he's a guy who, who's a real generous guy, and he, he's given away a lot of things. He's given away mo- not just money, but cars. And on two occasions, he's given away his house. Can you imagine? His, his wife comes home, and, and he says, Honey, I gave away the house today to some people who didn't have a house. So somebody interviewed her and said, How did, what, how did you feel about that? She said, How did I feel about that? I felt great about that. And they're like, Your husband gave away your house? You felt good about that? She said, Listen, you didn't know him before he knew Jesus. I was married to him before he knew Jesus, and he was on drugs, and he, was on, and he said, listen, I'll take the, the, the robber who knows Jesus who's giving away our house any day. And they asked her, so why do you think he's so generous? And I'll never forget what she said. Here's where her, these were her words. She said, he never got over being saved. He never got over it. I mean, the guy's going, he's walking around for years, even to the day, going, I am the least likely dude that would ever get saved. I, I deserve it the least. And he just never got over it. You know, I think the Apostle Paul was that way. He said, I used to persecute, I killed Christians. Uh, and he said, I was the chief among sinners. I can't, it's amazing. I don't think he ever got over it. I hope we never get over it. And if we have gotten over it, I hope we realize what we're, that what we're mistaken here. To be remembered, what in the world? I am the least likely guy. You know, David, David felt that way. David, in Psalm 51, he was praying, you know, after he had been in sin and he was repenting. And he says this, uh, after he's doing all this repentance, he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the very next verse, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that sharing your faith is just an overflow. It's a natural, organic overflow of the joy of your salvation. See, I think sometimes we keep our mouths closed because we've forgotten the joy. Oh, my goodness, we forgot. We forgot. Do you remember the joy of meeting Jesus? Do you remember what it was like when you realized, oh, my God, he's forgiven me? I, this morning, I was thinking about this. We're singing that holy, holy, holy. And there are times, do you know there are times that I get more concerned about what you guys think of me than a holy God who sits on his throne? And I'm sitting there thinking, who cares what they think if a holy God says, I forgive you and I love you? Listen, if you're having trouble sharing Jesus, maybe just pray David's prayer. I mean, that's why he wrote it. It's okay to plagiarize the Bible when you're praying. Not in general. Don't plagiarize in general. But it's okay to pray that prayer. Maybe if you're having trouble just sharing, just say, Lord, restore to me the joy. Let, let, let sharing Jesus just be, I've got this joy on the inside. Do you? It's unbelievable. I'm the least likely convert imaginable. And it just overflows. This woman's just sharing joy with her family and her friends and her neighbors. Number two. She was real. 
Did I mention this was going to be a really simple message? I can't remember if I said that or not. No? Okay, well, this is going to be a really simple message. She met Jesus, number one. Number two, she's real. This is just an ordinary woman in, in being transparent and honest about who she is and what she's experienced. She doesn't know very much right now. She knows very little at this point in the story. She's not an expert. She just says, he told me everything I ever did. In other words, look what he's done for me. Like the guy last week in Mark chapter 5. Go tell him what Jesus has done for you. And I, Listen, she isn't talking about substitutionary atonement. She doesn't know what that is. She, she's not talking about the incarnation. She's not talking about the philosophical nuances of the doctrine of the Trinity. She doesn't get And listen, I think all of that's important. I think apologetics is important. I think doctrine is important. But she doesn't know any of that. She's just saying, here's what Jesus did for me. It's kind of like in a few chapters later in John, there's going to be a guy who was born blind, and Jesus is going to heal him. And the Pharisees are like, come on, tell the truth now. Tell the truth. We, I, we know he's a sinner. And the dude says, listen, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But here's one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I see. I'm just telling you what he did. She's just honest about what happened. Another way to put it is this. She isn't hiding who she is from her friends. Jesus has affected her, and she's just sharing that. Listen, if you're a Christian, and Jesus affects how you live, if Jesus affects your values, if he affects your priorities, if Jesus affects how you spend your time, how you spend your money, if Jesus is central to your life, central to your decision-making, the only way for people in your life not to know it is if you hide it. It's, it's not a matter of training. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of character. Are you willing, are you willing to just let people see who you really are? Are, are, are you willing just, just to be honest and say, this is who we are. This is who I am. I've been affected by Jesus. This is who I am. This... See, because when you love something, you talk about it. You talk about it. I was reading a book the other day, and a guy was talking about he was at church or something. And he's standing there, you know, minding your own business, like you do sometimes at church. You know, he's minding his own business. And this one woman walks over to the other woman, and, and who was her, apparently a close friend, and she said, hey, hey, come here, come here, smell my hair. And he was like, what in the world? You know, like, because guys don't do that. Right, we don't, I mean, if Joel after church says, hey, Tim, smell my hair, I'm like, whoa, bro. Like, a little personal space here. Uh, but what was she doing? She had some new product. That she was excited about. So she went to her friend and said, smell my hair. She wanted to share. Why? Because if you love something, you talk about it. If you love somebody, you talk about them. I mean, if you and I sat down and we talked, and it, you know, it wasn't a counseling situation, so you were asking me actually questions about me, and we were just being open and honest, I'm going to talk about my family at some point. I'm talking about my wife, my kids, my dad, my mom. I, I'm gonna, if, we're, if we're sitting there talking, we're going to talk about New Life Church. Because I love New Life Church. I'm giving my life for New Life Church. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We're going to, if we talk long enough, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. And we're for sure going to talk about Jesus. And why? Because I'm just being real. If I'm just being real, here's who I am. He's going to come up. Why? Because that's who I am. I'm just being real. Are you willing to let people know who you are? 
I know this isn't very profound, but it's powerful. This, is, this woman is just an ordinary woman with simple transparency. She just says, here's what Jesus did for me. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now, your testimony is simply sharing with others the stories of what God has done for you. And everybody has a testimony. Right? You know, you know when, you have a, when a witness is called in, in a court of a law, they, they, they come in and they give their testimony. They are a witness. They give their testimony. What are they saying? They're just saying, here's what I saw, or here's what I heard, or here's what I know. That, that, that's all it is. And you've got a testimony. As my friend Jim Newsom says, testimony is a truth of God's word clothed in human experience. That's good. That's what a testimony. It's a truth of God's word clothed in human experience, and your testimony can be prophetic. Did you know, there's this weird verse in, 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 towards the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, uh, John is, sees this angel, and he, and he goes to bow down and worship, and the angel stops him. He says, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So worship God and listen to this sentence. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There is a prophetic power in your testimony. Think of it it this way. When you give your testimony, you're prophesying. Charles Spurgeon put it this way because we need to have a good quote from a Baptist today. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. In in a sermon I just reread this week called The Story of God's Mighty Acts, here's what he wrote. When people hear about what God used to do, one of the things they say is, oh, that was a very long while ago. But I thought it was God that did it. Has God changed? Is he not an immutable God, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does not that furnish an argument to prove that what God has done at one time, he can do at another? Nay, I think I may push it a little further and say what he has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as precedent. I'm going to read that again. This is good stuff. There's a reason he was called the Prince of Preachers. What God has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as precedent. Here's what Spurgeon is saying. It's kind of like the analogy of case law, right? And I'm not a lawyer, okay, but I've read a bunch of John Grisham novels. And I have seen Law and Order on TV, so I'm basically like an honorary lawyer. Not really. But you know this, people come and they try to argue legal precedent, right? Uh, Your Honor, in, uh, you know, Parrish versus the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you know, the court found. And and what are they doing? They're trying to cite legal precedent so that the judge makes a decision on their behalf. You with me? There is a sense in which your testimony becomes case law. And it prophesies what has happened in the past and can happen again. You know, one of the things I do, if I've got something I'm really struggling with, I'm really praying about, and I'm I'm really concerned about, I find somebody who's got a testimony about it. 
and I hear their testimony. Like I'm praying for my kids. I hear somebody uh, praying for their kids who were in a similar situation, and, and God showed up and did something, and I go, okay, Lord, there, I got case law. I got precedent. Here's what you did. There's all kinds of precedent in the scriptures. You can just go to the word and get it, but find a testimony for whatever you're praying about, and it's there. In fact, when you give your testimony, you're prophesying what God, God is going to do. In fact, the Hebrew word for testimony means to repeat and do it again. That's the definition of the word. To repeat and do it. So there's a sense in which when you tell your story of what God has done, it's happening again in the hearer. And it's bringing glory to God. The very act of telling your story is reenacted. It's, it's, it's repeat and do it again and do it again. When you tell the testimony, God's getting glory for what he did. And it encourages you to believe he can do it again. By the way, just a side note here. Don't ever tell your testimony without kindness. Never do it to win an argument. Never, never tell your testimony to make somebody look bad or feel bad or to make you look superior. Don't try to one-up people. You, you know people like that? I know, I know you know people like that. No matter what you say, they got something worse or better, whatever, whichever way you're going. If you're like, really, I'm bummed out. Oh, you, ain't no, you have seen nothing. Right? Don't ever use your testimony to one-up somebody. Tell your testimony because you love them. And listen, if you don't love them, just keep your mouth shut. Like, if you don't care about them, then just don't say anything. And here's what you do. You go to God and say, God, I don't care about them. Not in front of them. But just go ahead. God, it's not like he's going to go, oh, that's unchristian of you. He, he already knows. Just say, God, I don't really care about them. So how about this, Lord? Would you give me your heart for them? Would you help me to see them the way you see them? If you pray that prayer, you better watch out. Because your heart will be filleted. Because God loves them. Jesus died for them. So if you're going to do it, do it because you love it. You know what? Um, Dr. Martin Luther King, when, when, during the Civil Rights Movement, when they would have marches and things like this, a lot of people don't know this because a lot of things that are reported about Dr. King have been kind of sanitized from the good theology that was in there uh, most of the time. And, and, and most of the time you don't hear these stories. But you know what he used to do before they would march? He would pull everybody together and say, listen, if you're not marching because of love, don't march. He said, if you're just doing this for your own liberation, don't march. You, I want you to do this because you love in, your enemy. You love the white man, and you know the white man is in bondage to racism. And because you love him, you're going to march. And if you can't say that, don't march. That's what he said. Can you imagine? He's, they might release dogs, and they did. Don't retaliate. They might turn on the water hoses, and they did. Don't retaliate. Why? Because I'm not doing this just because I love myself. I'm doing this because I love you, the oppressor. And it changed the world. You realize that's what Jesus did? 
we were his enemy and he loved us so much he came for us? Romans 2 verse 4 says this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? God's love for you, his, his kindness to you is what drew you to him. So, what, so just reflect that to the people around you. Steve Shogren put it this way. He wrote a book called Conspiracy of Kindness. And I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but if you're going to be in a conspiracy theorist, this is the one. Conspiracy of Kindness. Here's what he wrote. It seems people don't necessarily remember what they are told of God's love, but they never forget what they have experienced of God's love. See, guys, it's one thing to to tell people God loves them. It's another thing to be God's love to them. To be the vessel through which God shows love. And when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're just sharing Jesus. You're sharing Jesus. So this, this woman, she met Jesus. She was real. And number three, very quickly, briefly, she pointed to Jesus. She just points it. She doesn't say, hey, come to a seminar. No, she says, come see a man. Could he be the Messiah? Right. Now here's, I love this, actually, because she already believes he's the Messiah. She already knows he's the Messiah. But notice that even though she's being provocative, right, she's provoking them, she's respectful. Could he be the Messiah? What is she saying? Just come take a look at Jesus and see for yourself what he did for me. It's a winsome invitation. It's winsome. I just love that. Could he be the Messiah? Come on and check it out. I mean, listen, you guys, the, the way the faith spread in the first century when there was nothing but social cost to pay when you became a Christian. I mean, there was nothing you're getting out of this, right? In, in terms of socially, anyway, there's nothing you're getting out of this. The way the faith spread in the first century, please hear me, hear me out before you throw a rock, was not arguing politics. It wasn't. That's not how they should. You know, you know, there's nobody going, you know, that Caligula guy. Woo, you know, he appointed his horse to the Senate. You know, what do you think about that crazy wackadoodle? You want to get saved? No, nobody did that. What about that Nero? You know, that Nero, he wants to build a wall. I tell you what, no, no, nobody talked about that. What'd they say? We, I, I don't care who's emperor. I'm telling you who's king of the universe. Jesus, come meet Jesus. They didn't talk about, it was all about Jesus. This woman just says, hey, hey, come meet this guy. It's what Philip did in, in early on in the Gospel of John when, when he says to Nathaniel, I think we found the Messiah. And the, uh, who's that? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you remember what Philip says? He doesn't say, shut up, you goofball. He, I know you are, but what am I? He doesn't do stuff like that. What does he do? Come and see. Can anything good come out of it? Come see. Verse 42. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. She met Jesus. And maybe for some of you today is the day you're going to meet Jesus or meet him again. She was real. She just said, here's what the Lord's done for me. And she pointed people to Jesus. That's it. 
And you say, well, yeah, I mean, come on, that seems a little bit too simple. But that's what happened over and over again in the first century. This is how the early church spread like wildfire. It wasn't big name people. It was just normal. We're not even told her name. Just normal, everyday, ordinary people who simply lived a lifestyle of just organically sharing Jesus naturally. Just sharing Jesus joyfully. Look what he's done for me. And it changed the world. I wonder. I wonder. If it might not do it again. 